Hi there, it's Matt here, and welcome back to the podcast, and welcome back to the next episode in this series all about insomnia. Now, in the last episode, we spoke about the biological changes that go awry in patients with insomnia, resulting in a signature of hyperactivation of the body's biological stress systems. But it turns out that the body is only half of the story when it comes to insomnia. Lest we forget that sleep is of the brain and by the brain. And when it comes to insomnia, this is also very much true. Of the brain and by the brain. So what are we going to cover in this episode? Well, we're going to learn exactly what seems to change in the brain of people with insomnia. And more specifically, we will focus on two types of brain changes. First, we're going to speak about altered patterns of brain activity within specific regions of the brain in those with insomnia. And then we'll speak about altered patterns of connections or functional connectivity between different regions of the brain in patients with insomnia. And then finally, we're going to come full circle. And I'm going to stitch up these changes that I will describe in patterns of brain activity with the hyperactive stress biological changes that I discussed within the body in the last episode. And in doing so, what we'll see is a full embodied view of the condition of insomnia, both brain and body connected. So let's get into it, the brain. The first discoveries were made by placing either healthy, good sleepers, or patients with insomnia inside of brain scanners, and then measuring the changes in activity in different parts of the brain as they attempted to then try to fall asleep. Now, in the good, healthy sleepers, as they were starting their journey to fall asleep, three main groups or three main regions of the brain nicely started to shut down and fall silent in terms of activity. Those were the following. The first were emotion-related regions. Those started to calm down, and these are regions that we call the amygdala and also the cingulate cortex. And those two structures have been linked, among other things, to ruminating and worry if they are overactive. But nicely, in those people who were good, sound, easy sleepers, those parts of the brain were calming down and relaxing. Those parts of the brain were almost anxiety-free from a neural perspective, as it were. The second set of changes that we saw in these healthy good sleepers was that very basic alertness-generating regions deep within the brainstem, a set of regions that we call the ascending activating system, they also started to nicely shut down in patients who were good sleepers. And then third and finally, and this is actually important when we come back to insomnia, there was another structure in the brain, a structure called the thalamus. 
And this sits right at the center of your brain. It's almost sort of like a walnut or small hockey ball sized uh, circular structure. And that part of the brain also started to shut down in those people who were healthy, good sleepers as they were falling asleep. And why is that important? Well, because it turns out your thalamus operates like the sensory awareness gate of your brain. And when that structure, the thalamus, is active, the gate is swung wide open and all of the sensory information from the outside world will come rushing into your brain, flooding it with sensations and perceptions. And it was this sensory gate, the thalamus, that was, as I said, nicely calming down at the onset of sleep in those people who were good sleepers. And what that meant is that for the good sleepers, they could delightfully and mercifully disconnect from the outside world because the sensory gate of the thalamus was closing shut, which is simply just another way of saying that we start to lose awareness of the outside world, which is perhaps just another way of saying we're starting to fall asleep. A sponsor of today's show is Inside Tracker. Now, Inside Tracker is a service, and they come to your home, as they do for me, and they will analyze your blood and your DNA to know precisely what is happening inside of you regarding a host of different blood and metabolic and hormonal health metrics. What I also like is that in addition to the results, they then provide you with a personalized set of recommended, I guess, sort of lifestyle changes and suggestions to better optimize your health as a consequence of what those results were for you, that unique snowflake. So you can use the link insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker, and you will get a healthy discount from your purchase. So again, that is insidetracker.com forward slash Matt Walker. Now that was what was happening in the healthy good sleepers. But if you look at the activity patterns in those patients with insomnia, you see something different. First, those emotion-generating regions, those regions that will fire up rumination within the brain, they remained overactive in patients with insomnia as they struggled to fall asleep. Second, that same signature of hyperactivity was also seen even further, deeper down, right at the bottom of the brain, in that brainstem alertness activating region, or the vigilance brainstem region. That deep primal brainstem region stubbornly continued its wakeful activity watch in those patients with insomnia and thereby maintaining their alertness rather than allowing them to do the opposite, which is what they were trying to do, which is to drift off and peacefully fall asleep. The final change that we saw in patients with insomnia comes back to the thalamus that sensory awareness gate. Unfortunately, the thalamus also remained overactive. In other words, the gate of the thalamus 
was not closing fully shut. And therefore, the patients with insomnia couldn't seem to shut off from the outside world. That sensory gate of the thalamus remained open for perceptual awareness and perceptual awareness business, as it were, in those patients with insomnia. And perhaps a good analogy here, or maybe it's it's not a good, I'm flattering myself on I by saying it's a good analogy. It's probably not a good analogy at all. But it's a little bit like the last time that you close the lid down on your laptop to put it to sleep. But then when you come back 30 minutes later, you notice, oh my goodness, I think I can still see the screen is still bright and switched on. And in fact, if I listen, I can hear the processor and the hot fans running, and the computer still seems to be active despite the closed lid. Well, it's this analogous problem that's occurring in patients with insomnia in terms of brain activity. Those alertness powering centers at the base of the brain in the brainstem were remaining switched on. They were running those overactive routines. They were activating the thalamus, which couldn't close its sensory gate. It couldn't shut itself down from the outside world and go to sleep. Added to which then we have all of those recursive loops of emotional programs firing up in those emotional centers of the brain. And that collection of features may sound painfully familiar to those people with insomnia. But that's not the end of the story. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that there were not only changes in the activity of specific regions of the brain, but there were also changes in what we call the functional connectivity of the brain. And this is where we start to discuss what we call large-scale networks in the brain. And by the way, that, that sounds all fancy. A network in the brain, it's just a collection of individual brain areas that all operate together to accomplish a common function. Let's say that function is visual perception or that function is about making new memories. Well, it turns out that there is a whole individual set of brain regions that sort of link together that are what we call functionally connected in a functional network that in unison accomplish those types of things. And what we found is that in patients with insomnia, the functional connectivity between these networks in the brain is different. And specifically, there are two large-scale networks that show changes in patients with insomnia. The first is a set of brain regions that link together to form what we call the default mode network. And this network is associated with ruminating and thinking about the past and also ruminating or prospecting out about the future. The second network to mention here is something called the salience network. And this network is involved in things such as detecting threats and also instigating changes in our moods and our emotional reactivity. Well, it turns out that when we looked at those two networks in particular, they were different in patients with insomnia relative to healthy good sleepers. And specifically, those two areas had become overly communicative. 
They had become too tightly bound together in their ongoing chatter of connectivity, impatience with insomnia. And why is this relevant? Well, that first network, the default mode network, when it's too tightly bound together, too strongly connected, there's too much communication there, that can lead you to excessive worry, excessive rumination, both about the past and also the future. And we know that to be a psychological signature of patients with insomnia, either when they're trying to fall asleep and they can't shut down that Rolodex of worry and rumination, or they've woken up from sleep and they can't get back to sleep because of those same things. The second reason that those changes were important comes back to the salience network, that threat detection network. And once again, it's almost as though because that network is too bound together, too tightly coupled and too tightly wound in patients with insomnia, that things become too emotional, perhaps too threatening, perhaps too salient, almost as though this thing called the bedroom and this idea of trying to get to sleep becomes a threat and a fear and a worry in and of itself. This podcast is supported by Athletic Greens. Now, Athletic Greens is a comprehensive nutritional drink and it contains countless different health components let me stop there. I say countless. I actually know the company pretty well and I know how the product is made. And I believe at last count, it's over 75 different vitamins and minerals and probiotics, prebiotics, and other whole food source nutrients. And you consume it every day. And I do drink Athletic Greens. And for the record, I buy my own supply because of all of the obvious sort of integrity trappings that come with free product, and I just don't want to get into that. So as I said, I know the company really quite well, including their stellar CEO, and I trust the creation and their manufacturing procedures. They've got all of the correct stamps, things like TGA and GMP stamps. Basically, they're rigorous. So anyway, if you are mindful of your health, then you may want to check them out at the link, which is athleticgreens.com forward slash Matt Walker. And if you use that link, you'll get some money off your first order and also some free travel packs. So that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Matt Walker. Okay, so I'm going to hit the pause button there because that is a lot of information about changes within the brain that I have just sort of <laughs> vomited out ineloquently to you over the past minutes. And to draw things uh, now to a close, having gone over those detailed changes within the brain, I want to come back to the final part of our story today, which helps us close the loop between these changes in the brain that I've just described and the changes within the body that I described in the last episode. Because in that last episode, I mentioned how patients with insomnia can have the excessive release of stress-related chemicals, things such as cortisol and also norepinephrine. Well, it turns out that those things not only flood the body, 
and cause the fight or flight branch of the nervous system to become too active and the heart starts to race and you can feel this, this racing, beating heart. But those chemicals can also flood into the brain. And when they reach the brain, what do they do? Well, it turns out they cause excessive activation in all of the stress-related activating regions that we've just described in this podcast episode. But as critical here, it's a reciprocal relationship. And what I mean by that is if you have hyperactivation in those parts of the brain that we've just discussed today, you can also trigger the body to release those same stress-related chemicals of cortisol and noradrenaline. And so this becomes a so this becomes almost a self-fulfilling negative spiral prophecy. Actually, that's terrible. I'm mixing metaphors there. What am I doing? But I think you get my point. You can have a trigger within the brain that causes a stress-related response within the body, or you can have a stress-related response within the body that then further triggers increases in stress-related brain activity. As those increase even more, they trigger further increases in stress-related body activation, and so on and so forth. And I want to take my time in re-describing this picture because it is a set of very real, very measurable changes in the brain and the body that teaches us never to dismiss people suffering from insomnia under the assumption that it's really not a medical condition. Well, it very much is, and a medical condition of both the brain and the body. And hopefully what I've described in these past two episodes helps us realize that it's also not simple changes, but a very complex set of changes that occur within patients with insomnia. And perhaps no wonder then that the more blunt instruments of classic old school sleeping pills are yet to be the perhaps ideal way that we treat insomnia. Those classic old school sleeping pills, they will simply sedate the brain. Now, I should note that uh, medicine currently does rightfully uh, see a time and a place for the short-term use of those types of sleeping pills, including the newer types of sleeping pills. But because of an understanding of their risks and there are risks associated with them, sleeping pills are no longer recommended as the first-line treatment approach for insomnia by the American College of Physicians, at least. But don't lose hope, because fortunately, there is an effective non-pharmacological treatment for insomnia that's been developed and it seems to be more powerful in terms of restoring naturalistic sleep in patients with insomnia. And it is this elegant non-drug therapy that will be the topic of our next episode in this series all about insomnia. But for now, I will simply say goodbye, thank you again for joining, and I'll see you next time.